Hey, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of Adventures in Machine Learning. This week on our panel, we have Francois Bertrand. Hello. We also have Ben Wilson. Hello there. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv. And this week, we're talking to Laszlo Suragner. Laszlo, do you want to introduce yourself, let people know who you are, why you're famous, all that good stuff? Hello, everyone. So I'm Laszlo uh, from London, originally from Hungary. I was a quant for seven years, trading in commodities and and other futures. Uh, I spent two years at Candy Crush, so I specialized in uh, uh, player behavior and spamming, you know, everyone on Facebook. And I, I specialized in virality as well. I also spent four years as head of data science at uh, London FinTech, where we specialized in natural language processing for for investment banks. So marketing intelligence for emerging markets, all kind of uh, interesting thing. Translation from rare languages like Arabic and Turkish and state-of-the-art high-performance text processing. Awesome. When I went freelance, I was still only a few years into my development career. My first contract, I was paid 60 bucks an hour. Due to feedback from my friends, I raised it to 120 bucks an hour on the next contract. And due to the podcasts I was involved in and the screencasts I had made in the past, I started getting calls from people I'd never even heard of who wanted me to do development work for them because I had done that kind of work or talked about or demonstrated that kind of work in the videos and podcasts that I was making. Within a year, I was able to more than double my freelancing rates and I had more work than I could handle. If you're thinking about freelancing or have a profitable but not busy or fulfilling freelance practice, let me show you how to do it in my Dev Heroes Accelerator. Dev Heroes aren't just people who devs admire, they're also people who deliver for clients who know, like, and trust them. Let me help you double your income and fill your slowdowns. You can learn more at devheroesaccelerator.com. So I, I think Ben gushed for like five minutes about you before the, <laughs> the call started. <laughs> and, you know, and I know he was the one that invited you on the show. And he's he shared some ideas that I think are an outgrowth of some of the things that he's picked up from you. Uh, ben, do you want to just explain where you're coming from with this and your relationship with Laszlo and, and stuff like that? Yeah, we met on community forum called mlops.community. Uh, Slack group where a bunch of professionals in industry are answering questions of, of nascent uh, people or people who are you know, just getting started into ML or are currently working as data scientists in industry that just want to hear from people who have been there, done that. And it became very apparent to me that the man on this show today has definitely been there and done that. Any sort of challenging question that's ever posted on there you can pretty much guarantee that he's going to be responding to it, but responding to it in a way that is thought-provoking and mentoring to that person who's asking the question and giving a truly well-researched and thought-out answer based on experience and wisdom. So I thought it would be just natural to have uh, to, to invite him onto this show and have him talk about some of the stuff that he's been writing about in his personal blog, which is just amazing content. And it's it's a rarity to hear to, to sort of read that content in, in the ML space right now because it's not what everybody else is talking about. It's something that it comes from experience of doing it, of doing it wrong at first, learning how to do it right, and then proving out over years uh, through applying that wisdom about how to do ML properly in the industry. Nice. So I think we also threw around the 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 terms of like production ML and stuff like that. So I'm I'm really curious just to dive into this, especially since Laszlo, your articles 
all kind kind of come under that header, right, of uh, production or productionized ML. Yes, I, I try to focus the blog at the moment in this in this area of of like a bit more software, a bit more management and organizational style, understanding of of how to do this, what our experience working for this fintech company where it was a 40 people company, probably about 20 engineers, a five to 10 people data science team, depending on how do you count the team. Almost everyone was junior to NLP, including me. So we need to figure out everything on the fly, create a product that is accepted by traders at investment banks who has salary of $5 million, you know, and they don't tolerate errors because then they don't have a salary of $5 million. So this is a challenging environment and current natural language solutions are not in the performance where you can deliver this kind of uh, content. This is a challenge. How do you solve it? How do you organize this amount of resource and, and, and deliver to these clients? And I try to bring my background from quant finance, which is this kind of proto uh, productionized machine learning. So at the first part of, of my startup, I, I worked as a software engineer. So I went out, uh, learned the technology, the terminology, how software engineers think about their work, you know, and use that as well for, for how do you productionize machine learning? How do you write code and be agile in machine learning context? Mm-hmm. That was actually a, a very uplifting and, and positive experience. So that's one of the reasons why with Ben at the MLOps community, I, we created this channel and, uh, and started advocating coding practices for data scientists. Uh, because I think that's the biggest gap at the moment that data scientists don't think about their out code as their output as their primary record of their work, which is a bit of a dangerous situation. Because if you're an analyst, you know you can get away with it because a PowerPoint presentation is your output. You create insights and then transfer that to as an executive. I think I wrote about one of these on, on one of my blog posts. And that, but if you are a productionized machine learning engineer, you need to think of your code as the primary output. You know, you need to express yourself through that and you need to have it as a quality that can create you know, value purely by existing. So, um, and this is where, where software engineering practices are coming into the, into the picture, but they need to be adapted because if you read them, you know, most of them are actually written for Java, so not, not Python. And also commercial software engineering is not machine production as machine learning. So you can only take over a couple of things and then you need to adapt the rest for the subject. And and this is this is where this comes up as a form versus substance argument. So writing productionized code is a form argument. You are expressing your, yourself through this. But the substance is different because the substance is, is the problem. Like how do you solve machine learning problems? Like the theory, the data, communicating the domain and bringing these through together. So that's my philosophy around the blog. Does it make sense, Ben? Yeah, definitely. And uh, something that really resonated with what you said about how you learned. I mean, you studied CS in in your undergrad, and then you got PhD in, in pure math, I believe, correct? So, you know, your, your thesis was on time series forecasting about saying, hey, I'm going to really research this and see how this is applicable. But... Even in those programs, when you study that in college, it's not preparing you for being a developer. Uh, even if you're going into pure software development, you have to learn that 
uh, and it's usually through working with other people and getting exposed to it. And that's the one bit of information that I that I see is common across all of us who are now considered ML engineers in industry. All of us worked with software developers at some time. We said, yeah, we know statistics, we know ML, we know these algorithms, but learning how to write proper code or maintainable code, extensible code, it's not something that's intuitive when you're coming from that analytics and algorithmic background. So uh, everybody I've met who's considered skilled at this, at writing production machine learning code, at some point paired up or got into a group of software developers and said, teach me how you do what you do. And I'm going to adapt that for my use case. And taking whole cloth, exactly how software developers write code. You know, if you talk to a front-end developer who's writing a web application, like, oh, I'm going to write my ML code exactly as they do. Good luck trying to abstract away ML in that way. You end up making this unmaintainable code base that's just too complex from my experience. But yeah, can you tell me some of the other things that you've noticed of bits that you've taken from software development and applied to your own production ML uh, code bases that you've done? Yeah, I think the one one important thing is is to make sure that you are understanding your first principles in software engineering. So like sound bites, like I think one of the the most fundamental uh, realization is that code is 10 times more read than written. So it means that you mm-hmm. optimize for reading. And that's that's not something what you ever hear. And you you prioritize someone else's reading because yep. if you it's not you because you wrote it. So you know in six months' time you might as well some it, it could be someone else's code. But that's that's for example one of the reasons what code review does. You know, that's that's one of the problems what I see in, in especially in the machine learning community, because there's not enough software engineers, is some of these are like cargo culting, these terminologies, like a code review, for example. Like you really need to learn what you are looking for in a code review and what you need to tell the 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 other party is to to change because that can be like a contentious issue uh, because you are criticizing someone else's work but why is it okay to criticize someone else's work why is some way of solving problems is better than another way of solving these need to be clearly defined in policies and and visions because otherwise uh, you will going to create friction inside your team and and that goes to software engineering that goes to domain you somehow need to remove these frictions and, and create like a positive vibe inside startup because machine learning is hard. Yep. It's not going to be easy. And some of the problems, it's hard because the problems themselves are hard. Um, often there is this kind of, um, I think it's uh, sufficing is the, is, is the verse or satisfying. Satisfying is a word I think Casey Kozirkov uses it to how people make decisions in, in complex situation, in bounded context, is is like they try to convince themselves, I know, and go. And usually that's not the case. And that's a pretty problematic situation where you say, okay, I have a machine learning problem. I'm going to start with something simple and then put it into production and then go to in production and then try to improve it and then fail because your solution was too simple in the first place. You know, you don't have a degree of freedom to, to resolve these things. And, and, and often one of the first thing what we are testing, uh, one of the first signs that you need a machine learning solution is you already failed in algorithmic solutions because 
if software engineers can solve it, you know, they should solve yeah. it. You know, you shouldn't bring in. <laughs> you know that you need to turn up only when you are when the problem is so dire and there's so much money at stake that anything is on the table. And obviously, as you said, you know, this is a $250 million question. Failing is, is not an option. You need to think of as a business problem and an organizational problem. If you have $250 million uh, revenue, let's say, can you hire 10,000 people to label it <laughs> by hand? <laughs> that was, I mean, it might sound laughable, but that's, that's our first mental model. If, if you can hire 10,000 people, can they solve the problem? If they can't solve it, because this is somehow some kind of magic, you know, algorithm that probably this problem is is not solvable. Right. Um, and then the, what you do is you optimize this business process that requires ten thousand people down to maybe a hundred, you know, maybe twenty, maybe three, and maybe if you if you're down to three, maybe that's when you can when you can solve this problem because ninety eight percent of the of the situation automation we're gonna solve. The model need to flag that two person that goes to a person and then they hand label it for you or like in a human in the loop situation. That was our mental model for how to solve machine learning without machine learning. Because essentially you have a business process which has 10,000 people in it, you know, and then you don't need to worry about technology. And then you start worrying about technology. And that's how you organize your machine learning efforts because then you have a business case, isn't it? Because you know what's each iterations value added it because you this hypothetical employees salaries is what's at stake yeah and, and that's, that was to go along with that is another quote that i love that you wrote in one of your blog posts which was the time to call in the ml team is when you can ask a business unit who's currently doing a task how is it that you do what you do to solve this problem and if you can get subjective definitions of how they do it but not objective if they can't actually give you the rules that they use and it becomes more of a gut feeling, it relies on human intuition, that's a candidate for ML and a perfect candidate for getting something that will eventually be released into, into production. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's one of the feedback was when we were labeling something, but some niche articles in finance. And I asked uh, my boss who is an ex-MD from Deutsche Bank. And I said, you know, it's like, when do I know that it's good? what should i give you and then he said i'm going to i'm going to know what is good when i see it and that's a clear indication that you are having some kind of human cognition inside this loop and you need to model that human cognition and there is not going to be a rule based solution for that so right. you're okay to go forward you're justified to create like a more convoluted solution and you touched on a very important case you know uh, of why do you need well maintained technological solution because if you don't have it, most of your efforts will going to be spent on maintaining that technical solution from a technical perspective, instead of talking to domain people <laughs> of where is the next best thing to do. So our principle was, was that for that we should aim for 80% of the time uh, of a data scientist should be spent on evaluating the situation and talking to domain people. And that means that you only have 20 person to build new models, build new features, and, and maintain the current existing solutions. And, and I think we achieved this by having a very well-organized uh, technical stack, which had as few moving components as possible, because we only have four people to, to write code there. And I think this is, this is probably something which is desirable. But obviously, as you said, you know, monitoring is currently a major, major 
not buzzword, but uh, major hyped uh, feature of the MLOP stack. But that's that's nothing new. Just people mm -hmm. was ignoring for now, <laughs> you know, or building it manually, the painful way. Yeah, but it's it's <laughs> not even the technical. But it's 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 not even the technical solutions the important, but the actual act of plotting charts, looking at charts, yes. questioning of why charts looking like this. Uh, and why they don't look something else. What do I do to make it look better? And getting back to my, my quant finest times, you know, it's like that's all you do if you are a quant trader because you write the algorithm, you approve it, it gets approved by the CIO, you put them in production, and all you do from that point onward, 10 hours a day, is to look at the charts and looking <laughs> if it still does the same thing with the thing. So I, I'm quite, quite liberal dishing out time for people to look at these these data and and then of course um, i consider in this 80 percent label anything to do with labeling because if you think labeling is a kind of activity of evaluation and monitoring because if your situation changes and your monitor and your your system changing you need to sample the data right now and then decide what kind of label you're expecting from the current situation and then feed it back to the system you know this kind of active learning Style, style work. And I think this is where, where Agile comes into the picture and why, why Agile style software engineering is should be the main way of how projects are run because as opposed to the academic, which is which you mentioned before, is because this kind of partitioning of data cleaning, modeling, evaluation, that's that's no longer valid in a in a production system, isn't it? Because once you put it into production, the evaluation the, the, the evolution immediately starts. You need to go back and change the model and then and then evaluate it again. And you or, should iterate on... Yeah, or add features continuously. I mean, if you have something that's important that is influencing your business's interaction with, with reality, with the world, you're, you're out there interacting with customers, you're you know, sending some sort of prediction that dictates how your company is interacting with another company or a family of companies you're changing reality. You're changing the nature of the data that you used for training. And there's a feedback loop that happens in a lot of ML that a lot of people don't realize when they're just laser focused on, hey, we're done when we get to production. It's like, no, no, no. You start when you get to production. That's what I always tell people. It's like, that's the beginning of your journey of you now have to maintain this thing. And it's not, like you said, it's not just monitoring stuff. I mean, there, there's some component of that, but it's also, what do you do with what you find through monitoring? If you realize that there's a, a concept drift or there's some sort of feedback uh, that, that's in existence, whether you're doing active or passive retraining of your model, and, and you can get super fancy with whatever implementation you want for, on an MLOps stack. But at the end of the day, the data scientists are going to have to change the nature of that model, adding new features, removing features, doing things with the features that will influence how the model learns, air quote learns, by the way, just how it adapts to the correlation <laughs> that it's finding in order to still be relevant or to improve it over time. And I 100% agree with, with what you said about that agile methodology of knowing that things will change. These aren't static entities that we push out into the world. They're very fluid. Yeah, yeah I want to, can I chime in on a couple of these ideas? Because we've been going, I've kind of been racking up. Oh yeah, I want to say something about that. <laughs> uh, 
But uh, going back, at least initially to the idea that you're going to have some subject matter expert actually tell you, yeah, that looks right. That is right. Things like that. I mean, I've experienced this on code that isn't machine learning, right? Where somebody communicates some value, some thing, some outcome that they want, right? And then I have to deliver code that delivers that outcome. And it's an iterative process even then, right? It's like, hey, the interface isn't right. The the experience isn't quite right. You're, you know, you didn't use the corporate colors, you, you know, whatever, right? And so you get that feedback. But I love the point that you made eventually going to production. Both both of you made this point where you go to production and then all of a sudden you're getting real world feedback, right? You're collecting real world data from real users, putting real interactions into this thing. And that's, yeah, that's when you start getting from them because they quit using your feature or because they they give you some other feedback that the outcome they're getting isn't what they want or something like that. I, I just love that process. And again, it, it is that agile process, right? Where it's, we know more now than we did last week. And so we're going to adjust what we're doing to make sure that we're appropriately responding to the stimuli that we have coming toward us both from the business and from our users. Yeah, that's exactly that's exactly the adaptation of, of, of what we said to, to machine learning. And one important thing is your intuition about what is a problem, especially if it's a convoluted, like machine learning suitable problem, like humans interacting with each other, your intuition is almost certainly wrong. You have no idea <laughs> what your customers will gonna find annoying when you are in this kind of, highly cognitive level, like like watching a recommender system's output, you have something in your hand. This is what you would like to see. And then you so- see something else because of your intention, the recommender system. But customers are surprisingly angry about getting incorrect recommendations. Um, Can confirm. And figuring out of what, why the recommender system recommended something which was not a match with a <laughs> cognitive idea is like, you don't know. And then you don't know which one is how hard to figure out. So it means that you kind of need to test these in, in production. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and there is like a long list of, of problems of what to figure out. So I have a background in finance and we work with these financial analysts in these in this startups. And uh, we spent huge amount of energy in this one. And we were still not getting it right of what they think it should do, the machine learning should do, until it was actually in production. and it was proper, real feedback was created. So it's a good point. Getting back to Ben's point about dropping it into production and then forgetting about that. That's important. This is where we bring up like product mindset in machine learning and machine learning products is a model is not something what you want to get rid of. It's not a ticket you want to close and then forget and move on. It's a a product. So you are in charge of it forever. If the company decides Mm -hmm. that this model or this ensemble goes in, to this business problem, you're actually in charge of the business problem, not, not the model. And when you, as you said, when you deploy to production, that's when your work starts and it's going to stay stay your work. And you need to be familiar with the, the context, the environment that can be the influencing. So one of the, the typical cases what people bring up is uh, how COVID changed the predictions or, or, or the model's behavior because it was like a regime shift. That's an extreme example. Smaller examples, you're not supposed to get these things from when they happen, you know, realize it from traction data. 
uh, you're supposed to anticipate these, prepare plan Bs, plan Cs, plan Ds. So when they are happening, you have some kind of alternative way of switching between these because you're not going to have time to retrain the model where your recommender system stops working, you know, and then starts spouting garbage to the, the clients mm-hmm. and then they are churning. So, so I think this is an important thing to anticipate, you know, being proactive. And that requires a tech stack that is capable of supporting that you are actually thinking about meta problem or a, or a more abstract problem rather than how can I glue two vendor products together. That's one of the production as machine learning's pr- primary principle that usually you should be talking to your domain people, not yeah, that, that actually kind of answers one of my the questions I was going to have. All this talk about going into production, what do you say are the, let's say, the top three most important things you have to be ready for? Or the things that, if this isn't, is it talking, having the domain people involved after once the model hits production? Is it having good mon- monitoring? I mean, there's, there's, they're, they're pretty obvious, but what would, you, what would you think is the most important or things that people don't generally think about that are kind of gotchas when, once you hit production? Yeah, I think the primary um, transparency is, is the most important thing. So you need to have a logging or any kind of uh, telemetry set up on the situation uh, as much as possible from day one. So, or probably bef- even before day one. So you can uh, experience the impact of your of your model um, on, on KPIs and iterate on these. So figure out of whether the business, this is what the business want to solve. Is it working? You know, what's the next step? Who needs to be involved? That's the first most important thing. Um, the second one is probably, as you said, uh, like domain connection. So organizational structure should support the generation of insights and the feedback of the insights into the system. You need to talk to engineers, you need to talk to domain people or business units, executives, managing their expectations. So you're not just a statistician who writes notebooks and then creates PowerPoint presentations. You are part of a product team who deals with a lot of non-technical matters. And, and actually, would you and Ben say that that is there a level of education that needs to be performed on those stakeholders? Like the, the expectation that we got the model, like you said, close the ticket, we're done. Like getting you know everyone involved to know that, okay, this is going to be, you know, you guys are in for a lot more meetings after this thing launches because we need to keep track of this. Yeah, I mean, I, yes. I've actually yeah. heard from Laszlo in responses on the Slack community about this exact topic. And he gave a talk on it on another, another group uh, podcast that was amazing, which is this product-focused way of, of seeing things that I've experienced the same thing in my previous positions before working at Databricks. And that's something that I preach to my clients as well, is when you're before you start your first experimentation phase of a project, you should already be talking to the subject matter experts. You should already be talking to project managers to say, here's the idea that the business came to us with. Let's start these planning meetings early so we fully understand this problem. And the only people that are going to know that how that problem should be solved are those SMEs. The people with, as I said before we started recording, the skin in the game. These are the people that actually care if this thing really works or not. Like the data science team cares, of course, and the company cares. But there's people whose livelihoods and their day-to-day operations rely on this, this solution. They're going to be the greatest insight of understanding how this needs to become a product. And uh, the earlier that's communicated, the better in my experience. 
Hey, folks, if you love this podcast and would like to support the show, or if you wish you could listen without the sponsorship messages, then you're in luck. We're setting up new premium podcast feeds where you can get all of the episodes released after Christmas 2020 without the ads. Signing up will help us pay for editing and production, and you can go sign up at devchat.tv slash premium. I just I, I want to chime in and just point out that I wish that this would happen more often in areas of programming that are not ML. I mean, <laughs> you know, my my full time job, I'm a web developer, right? And there are so many times where it's, hey, we need this next week. Well, how's it supposed to work? Um, we'll get the designer on that. Okay, well, what what kinds of things need to be happening in the background? Well, we know it needs to do this and this, but we'll have to get back to you on these other parts. Okay, well, we need more specificity in these couple of areas. Okay, we don't know any of that. And it's like, and you want this done next week? You know, and, and then the other the other part of it, so they go talk to the subject matter experts at that point, right? The The people who are dealing with the incoming data and the outgoing data and what's going on and the reporting and all that stuff, right? And they'll kind of scratch something together for us to work on. But boy, you know, it'd be real nice if they were having these conversations three months ago or two months ago and saying, we're going to need this feature and this feature and this report and this other feature. And so let's go ahead and make sure that we have everything designed out and figured out and done now so that we can move ahead with it and get the right thing. And it seems like given the nature of machine learning, this is even more important because the parameters that you're working with are consistently evolving, right? You're consistently getting more information and that information is actually what drives the behavior. And so at the end of the day, yeah, you have to have all the, your ducks in a row because I don't see how you do this anyway. And then on top of that, once you get the feature released, I think in, in a lot of other fields of software development, yeah, we're habituated to the feature is finished, people can use it, and so we're going to close the ticket right? We're going to close the ticket and we're going to be done. And because this is an ongoing thing, I mean, that's kind of the nature of quote unquote machine learning, right? We, we have to consistently be evaluating it. I, I love that idea there. And w the way that we see this manifest in other areas, again, I'm going to use a web development example is why aren't people using this or why are we getting like half halfway results out of this, right? And so then at that point, they go install Hotjar or some other monitoring, some other real-time thing and start collecting information off of it to make sure that it's getting done instead of having proactively put that in place so that when they want the question answered, they can actually go look at the monitoring to get the answer. And, and so anyway, I, I see parallels all over the place between what we're talking about here for machine learning and what we do in regular and other forms of development. And I'm also seeing that, yeah, because the data and the model are so intrinsically tied together and that they drive the behavior of the system, this is something that you can't afford to not be consistently watching and evaluating with machine learning. Yeah, something that I've told to a, a front-end developer in the past, an actual iOS developer, who is asking about this topic, uh, about like, well, what, why don't you just close the epic and the, it's done, right? <laughs> we can move on to the next thing. I'm like, okay, in your terms, Mr. iOS developer, that's the equivalent of me saying, okay, you finished your Epic for this quarter. I want you to shut down the app. And that kind of brought a light on in his head. He's like, oh, so that's what the, like, yeah, this project is our iOS app for ML. It is a service and we have to make sure that it's not doing bad things. Yeah, the, the other version of that that I see, especially for like iOS or Android developers is, okay, you closed the Epic. It works. It's done. 
you're great. New OS version. Well, crap. <laughs> you know, do, do the old APIs apply to the new system? Well, we closed the Epic. It's done. It's done, 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 done. <laughs> no, we're in a constantly evolving world. It's just that yours come on a release from Apple and ours come as we evaluate another week or two or three's worth of data coming in from our customers. Yeah, I like, Ben, what you said. It, it really, it feels like almost all software now is a service, not no longer a product. It feel, Yeah, like you said, whether it's the OS changing, the the, the data changing uh, due to feedback mechanisms on NML or, mm-hmm. yeah, like even my main subject matter games, you know, let alone the, uh, you know, what uh, Laszlo had to, to do at King uh, with uh, ongoing ops, but games now have patches and updates. And yeah, it feels like every every domain of software development is is no longer a packaged, you know, shrink-wrapped good kind of thing. But yeah, ongoing service. That's a, an interesting way to put it. Yeah, Laszlo. Uh, oh, go ahead. I, I have a question, but go ahead. I would go actually one step further on this. And I think that next to the traditional front-end, back-end development, machine learning will going to come up to as a third component. Mm-hmm. And if uh, data mesh will going to be a thing, then data will going to be. And this fourth thing is going to be natively part of any kind of like digital or technical um, solution, because it's this is so prevalent everywhere every single product will going to have some kind of machine learning component oh absolutely the other thing is is that the the more naturally you can and by naturally i mean i can flow through the application and get the information that i need in a meaningful way that is there's there's so much power in apps behind that and i just don't see any any other way you do it um, one question I have for you, Laszlo, is you're monitoring things and you're starting to gather data on how your system is performing. How do you know what to change? Um, usually, you there are two, two ways to do that. So you either do quantitatively. So as a data scientist, you are by definition, definition an analyst as well. And it's your product. You need to know it inside out. Like any kind of KPI, you know, what does it mean that it's one person less? You know, what does it mean if it's ten mm-hmm. percent less? And even beyond KPI, like just any kind of metrics, what you can what you can come up with, um, is there any kind of anomaly? That's one of the the detecting say, strange situations mm-hmm. that's not supposed to happen. That's one what you can do. And obviously, customer feedback is the, the other important thing. Someone reports an occurrence of one, identify what's the telemetry. Uh, equivalent of that of that error and look for others of these of the situations um, and just build a mental model of what's going on in your product um, and monitor that as i said you know you sp- you're supposed to spend 80 percent of your time on, on evaluating the situation so so you're going to have plenty of time to figure out and communicate this to to everyone else because maybe that's because going back to the the, the organizational part is there is a lot of this kind of negative energy in communication. And I think this is an important thing that maybe trainings to get over this and figuring out of these kind of functional groups like engineering, you know, domains, SMEs, you know, they're not supposed to hate each other. They have one goal, you know, executive. <laughs> like, like you're not supposed to hate your boss, you know, it's like if you hate your boss, you know, stand up and find another job, you know, it's like you need to be actively, you spend a lot of time on your, and I actually very passionate about like, like this kind of positive attitude and motivation. How do you, what kind of techniques do you have to make your team feel better? 
not just one-on-ones and be nice to them because that they are not that these are not leadership functions. But how do you structure their work that they like to do that and they are willing to do the, these these functions? Because that's the other thing is if you keep dropping tickets to a data science team and you measure their performance by how many tickets they close, then don't be surprised if they drop a model into production, close the ticket, and then never think about it again because you just made them disincentivized to keep maintaining that model. So these things, as a manager, you need to think these through and you need to, uh, one of my favorite uh, frameworks is is self-determination theory. So that has three components. To be someone, to be motivated in whatever they do is they need to have autonomy, mastery, and uh, relatedness. Essentially, they need to be good at what they are doing or getting better. You know, they need to have the tools to solve their problems, what they, they are facing. And uh, they need to relate to it and communicate their relatedness to this to other employees of, uh, at the team. And like, it's, not, it's very easy to create an organizational structure when these are bra- broken. If these are broken, people are just going to disintensivize and they're just not going to do what you tell them. You can either pay them more or you you can punish them, but they are that's not how it's supposed to work, isn't it? It's a, this is like you, it's an engine, you know. You need to rev it up and then and then get some momentum. So yeah, that that inspiration like, aspect of that triad, I think, is the most key thing, and it, it's something that I when I talk one on one with with managers of data science teams, that's my big bit of advice that I give them is work on not only their own soft skills but also encouraging those the, the development of those soft skills within the data science team. Because people don't usually talk about it that much, except this discussion we have been, which is we've been sort of dancing around this, this topic of bringing in SMEs and talking to products and talking to these different organizations. The onus is on the data scientists to have those conversations, to make the project successful, to build that collaboration. And that's what I recommend to people is learn how to talk to to other humans and and build inspiration learn how to build your your group's brand but not your own brand because it shouldn't be about ego it should be about a team and a company coming together to solve a problem and if that gets figured out i think the other two parts of the triad that you're talking about become more natural. Autonomy grows from that because people are like, we trust one another. We're going to do something cool. Yeah, go and build what you you know is right to build. And if somebody's inexperienced, which we all are when we come to a new problem, right? Nobody knows everything about ML. I mean, maybe somebody does. I haven't met them yet. I'm sure they're a fantastic <laughs> human being. But we all have to figure stuff out. And that growth and learning becomes so much easier when there's that trust and cohesiveness and and respect that, that mutual respect that people have and having that that ability to do those conversations with building those soft skills i think that's one of the most critical components of being a successful data scientist or ml engineer all right hang on so the question i asked was when you run into issues with your model how do you figure out what to change and your answer is you've got to work with the people you've got and pull together to figure out what's going on. Is that what you're telling me? Yeah, that that's. Mm-hmm. I was a bit more technical in terms of uh, KPIs, uh, but I wanted the silver the bullet that was a technical solution that I could just plug in, so I don't have to think about this stuff. Yeah, I mean, no. this, this it doesn't see, exist, does it? 
over in, I mean, there is a silver bullet, sort of. And over in the UK, there's a children's program from uh, CBeebies called Hey Dougie. And they're, uh, sorry, I have a young child who loves that show. There's a, a common theme that they're always talking about uh, whenever the, the little squirrels get together and, and solve a problem. They, they yell it all the time. It's a mantra for them. Teamwork. And that, that teamwork component, that is the magic bullet. It's being flexible and agile in methodology and in thought and in communication that can help solve those problems that you're going to encounter in production ML. That's my take on it. Yeah, empathy is also important. So like you need to train yourself to talk to non-technical domain people, domain experts or executives. Is that's you, you need to force yourself to stop talking about data science issues. You you should have your own ethos or ego or or whatever that people will trust you that you are capable of delivering technical solutions. You don't need to tell them, you know. <laughs> you have a degree in data science and you are a data scientist for who knows how long. Then you're going to understand that we will, what kind of models we are going to use. You know, it's like, but like it's an exercise of writing down you what what you want to say and then circle the technical words in it and then say none of these will gonna make sense anything for them. This is just techno blah blah for a person who is not trained in this, like mm -hmm. embeddings or deep learning or anything. You're trying to sell it with buzzwords. Think with they had what their priorities, what what they want to do and how do you help them and practice that as much as you can. And I think this is where data scientists are usually at fault. And I think this is a this is a solvable problem. You know, just mm -hmm. you need to practice talking to other people. If it's a regular situation and you make it a regular occasion, as I said, you know, 80% evaluation time and talking to domain people, practice speaking with every member of, of the team in various contexts, presenting them, asking for the feedback, you know, what did they understand that? And so Yeah, I always give people the test about how to have that conversation of removing techno babble. And I call it the holiday dinner test. If, if somebody that's either working for me or working with me on a technical problem, sometimes I'll switch mode and I'll tell them, I'm like, hey, pretend I'm a customer or pretend I'm somebody from the business. And, and they'll be like, oh no, here it comes again. So they know what I'm going to do, um, which is... God did not make me a patient person. I'm hearing what you're saying. And, the, and I'll say, hey, pretend that I'm your uncle and we're sitting together at a holiday dinner and I'm asking you what you're working on right now. You have one minute before he goes up and gets another beer from the fridge and completely ignores what you're saying. You have one minute to tell me what you're working on and I want your uncle to understand what you're actually building. And if you can pass that test, regardless of how ridiculously complex it is, I would struggle doing that with what Laszlo has been working on with NLP and FinServe. That's hard stuff to explain. But if you really grok that, you really understand what you're building, you can explain it in layperson's terms and convince somebody of the value of what you're building. And provided that you pass the holiday test, then you're good to go to talk to the rest of the business and, and sell your idea. Well, my mm. uncle's an ML engineer, so I let her rip. Oh, you're that <laughs> person. <laughs> just kidding. Just kidding. Yeah. My, my mom's a math teacher. And so you can, in high school, so you can assume a certain base level of intelligence. And then, yeah, that, that's essentially what I do. It's like, okay, how would I explain this to a reasonably intelligent person who has no idea how a computer works? I, one of my tricks on this is because obviously most of the time this 
this domain expert or the customer is expecting you to help them. Just let him speak. Let him talk about his job. Like make him explain what he does. Synthesize. Focus on priorities. You know, ask questions of of what's uh, what's going wrong. You know, what's his difficulties. You know, it's like, and then just keep talking to uh, you know, feeding back to him what he just mm-hmm. told you. Uh, there is a a guy called Chris Voss. I don't know whether you guys heard about him. Who is a, a negotiator for the FBI? Was a negotiator yep. for the FBI, and and he has all of these techniques of how to bring content out of people and bring them onto their side and and use that. And I think some of them are are, are very useful in this context because what you want is engagement. You want them to stay with you and talk to you and feel listened and you know. You can distill the information what they gave you later and then figure it out how to solve that with data science. They don't need to learn about that. Yeah, there have been a number of cases in my career where after that conversation, when we're getting to, like, they approach with a, a super complicated sounding problem of, hey, we need you to solve this thing and here's what we're expecting. And it, you find out later, oh, they read a blog that some data scientists wrote about solving this similar problem in their company. And then after having that empathetic conversation that like, hey, just tell me how you do what you do every day. Can I sit with you for an afternoon and just just watch how you work? And I'm going to ask you questions and annoy the hell out of you. But can I do that? And I've never had somebody turn me down ever from that. They're, they're usually excited about that concept. And then that conversation sometimes has come to realizing that this isn't an ML solution that needs to be built. This is a case match statement in SQL. And sometimes that's that's a, the best solution that you can have. It's a quick win that provides value, solves somebody's problem, automates away annoyance that they have uh, so they can use their brain for more creative pursuits. And it's a way to build street cred at a company by solving a problem really quickly, but it's a way to build a network of allies at a company too so that you can work on getting that cohesiveness across an organization with data science. Case switches don't make me look very smart, though. If you're getting into ML, you should not not be pursuing the end goal of looking smart. I I agree. I I had to push the button, though, because it was right in front of me. (laughs) I mean, Lazlo, I'm sure you have thoughts on that. Yeah, I, I have the opposite feeling is that sometimes you are seen as some kind of wizard who can do magic because you are the data scientist. And, it, and it's important to not land all of, with all of the problems and the, these impossible problems. Because one of the things like, okay, you had a problem which can be solved in the case switch statement, but why wasn't it solved before? You know, yeah. it's just a case switch statement. Because I see you can easily walk into a, a problem which is cannot be solved with a case switch t- statement, but also impossible to do with machine learning. And it would take a tremendous amount of effort uh, but because you are the wizard, you are going to land on your table because you can solve any problems and then you are going to struggle and then you are going to destroy your credibility because you are unable to deliver the magic. So how do you back out of these uh, prioritization questions? And, and this is where you sitting down with the client and watch what they are doing, really realize that actually the reason why they haven't solved it, this is not a big problem. It just maybe right. them once a week you know, or once a month. Yeah, I think the key to preventing that potential disastrous situation where you're seen as some alien who can just snap their fingers and solve problems is honesty. When you know that 
or when you have you suspect that this is a problem that is unsolvable like until we have quantum computing in the cloud or something that's that's affordable maybe then Next we can solve week. this problem yeah but there are problems out there that when you're experienced enough in data science you can kind of see it and say yeah there's no way that we can solve this either we can't collect the data that would solve this problem algorithmically or it would cost so much money to label data in order to train a model on this that the ROI just isn't there. It's important to be honest. I mean, go and do your research, provide evidence of why this might be impossible to do, but temper expectations through an, an honest approach to it. I'm a fan of strategically and tactically using self-deprecation in certain people when they, they think that data scientists are magicians just to let them know like hey we're humans we're not we're not uh, you know some some extraterrestrial being that can solve all your problems we're not going to solve everything but here's what we can solve yeah now we're kind of getting toward the end of our time and i want to make sure that if there's anything else that we'd kind of be i guess derelict if we hadn't covered it uh, is there anything else that we should be talking about here when we talk about productionized uh, machine learning any other angle or aspect? I think maybe I reiterate my, my point on MLOps is something what you grow into. Uh, so start so small, but productionized. Try to do it, getting away with it, and then identify bottlenecks and, and, and start iterating around that. Don't forget that a lot of these vendor-driven products are created for very large organizations who have very large... Uh, economies of scale in terms of feature engineering or um, deploying models into production, try solving these problems economically, and then figure out where is the value from productionized feedback, um, and then keep iterating and making your tech stack smoother. Love it. I think that's a good place to end too, is just, yeah, you know, take it a bit at a time. You don't have to, you don't have to build Netflix overnight or whatever. <laughs> yeah. All right, let's go ahead and do some picks. Hey, folks, I don't know if you've noticed, but I've been working a lot on figuring out how to help people become the most valuable developers on their teams or becoming the top 5% of developers in the field. If you're looking to level up, figure out how to contribute more, get the career you want, get the career that you want that will support the lifestyle you want, then you should check out the Most Valuable Dev Summit. I've invited some of my friends across the community, people that you've heard of, people that have worked on systems that you use on a daily basis, people who have invented new ways of doing things over the years in programming, and I've asked them one question, and that question is, how do you become a top 5% developer? How do you become one in 20 of the best developers out there? And so we're going to go ahead and have that conversation with them in interviews on the Most Valuable Dev Summit, and you can find that at summit.mostvaluable.dev. Francois, do you want to start us off with picks? Sure, sure. A bit of a softer one this week, and I'm sorry, Charles. I think I feel somehow that listening to podcasts and such media that we're, we're leaving some money on the table here because there's so many ads for this, but I've gotten really gotten into Audible for audiobooks and... I, I get a headache from reading too too many books I, after an hour for some reason, but audiobooks to me were the, the answer, and I just love being able to read good books, whether fiction or not, doing the dishes or just 
closing your eyes in bed or whatever, but it's, it's just, or in the car and it's just brilliant. And yeah, maybe we should get a, we should get a sponsorship, but you know, it's, it's still, uh, still pretty, pr- pretty good stuff. So I've gotten into it and started reading a bunch of books and loving it. So that's my pick for the week. Nice. You know what? I do have an audible affiliate account and uh, I will put my affiliate link in it. If you use my link, we get a kickback when you sign up, which is nice for us and you get a free book. So we'll put that link in so that if people follow that link, they can get a free book and we can uh, maybe make a little bit of money, take some of that money off the table. Right. But I'm with you there. I listen to audible all the time. Yeah, finally glad for after years of listening to ads on podcasts, I'm finally one of those guys. So there you go. <laughs> yeah, I have hundreds of books in my Audible account. And I really love it. So I will back you up on that all the way. Ben, do you have some picks? Oh, mine is intended to avert a self-serving promotion of our guest today. But I, I, I actually really recommend, and I think it's great, all the all of the posts that Laszlo's done on his personal blog, they are incredibly insightful. I highly recommend Anybody who's in the space of real-world business-focused data science work, uh, give a read. Read through them. They're not full of fluff like a lot of personal blogs are. They're actually well thought out and full of technical details about what it's actually like to do it for real. So can't recommend it enough. Yeah, I looked at what was there and I was impressed too. So we'll put a link to that in the show notes as well. I'm going to step in with a few picks. Uh, Before I do that, Francois, I'm kind of curious, what are you listening to right now? Started doing the uh, the whole what do you call it, the integral the uh, the entire works of uh, Sherlock Holmes. <laughs> Never really oh, interesting. Uh, listened to them, and it's kind of it's like 30, 40 hours, and it's just like every single one, and it's really fun to listen to. So I'm kind of kind of burning through this right now. It, it's pretty fun, and narrate you know the narrator plays a, a big part. Sometimes you mm-hmm. you get a bad one, but these are these are pretty good. Also went through uh, Game of Thrones, which was great narration on that one too. Nice. All right, we'll we'll put links to those in Audible as well. My picks, I am going to pick some of the books that I'm listening to on Audible. So I tend to really like the the physical books, and so I'll I'll pick up the physical book and and read through it and and work through it. I tend not to like the e-readers as much, even the Kindle, which is a little easier on you. I I much prefer having a physical book and vandalizing the margins with my ideas that come up when I'm reading them. But I, I listen to a lot more books than I read physically. And usually then I'll pick up the physical copy of the book that I'm really digging. But uh, one of the groups that I'm a part of does a book every couple of months. And so the book we're doing right now, when when we sign up, I always tell them, send me the physical book, and then I'll spend one of my credits on Audible to get the book itself. The one that I'm reading right now is The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. And it's it's awesome. And essentially, the author, uh, John Mark Comer, he just walks you through, hey, look, what is it that you want to accomplish in life? What really matters to you? Are you taking on so much that you feel like you have to hurry through all the stuff in life in order to get to all the stuff in life? And then what are you neglecting, right, as you hurry from one thing to the next? And it, it's been really, really great. It kind of has echoes of like minimalism by Greg McCowan, McEwen whatever his name is, which is also a great book. But I'm, I'm really enjoying kind of his perspective on this and just, okay, step back and figure out which parts of life matter and make sure you're doing those. So I'm going to pick that book. I'm still in the middle of Atlas Shrugged by Ayn Rand. And I am, I, I can't tell you, it's, it's like that book was written for today. 
and I'm I'm really really enjoying it. I'm probably about seventy five to eighty percent of the way through it at this point. So I'm I'm loving that. And then uh, finally, I am listening to something that's just straight unadulterated fun fiction, and that is Oathbringer by Brandon Sanderson, which is the third book in the Stormlight Archives. So it's magic and swords and you know all the stuff. So I'll put links to all three of those in the show notes. Another pick that I have, so I think I've mentioned I'm on this adult swim team that I go to Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at an ungodly hour that no one should be awake. But because I like pain, I go. And anyway, I just got some new swim fins. They kind of make fins in different uh, styles or or sizes. And the ones that I bought before, they have a really short fin. And so, you know, they give you a little more push and they work your legs a little harder but my coach wants me to get snorkeling fins and they make you go faster. But the trade-off is, is if you're swimming for an hour or two and you're actually trying to make time intervals, you're going to work your legs pretty good. And so uh, anyway, they're, they're pretty nice. I'll put a link to them in the show notes. And then, yeah, I guess the last pick I have, if you want to connect with me on Strava, you can see what I'm doing for my training. I'm kind of in a recovery cycle now with the swimming after a month. (laughs) it took me a month to where I can start running and and biking again on my off days without being completely wiped out. And so if you want to see, you know, what I'm swimming, what I'm running, what I'm biking, uh, you can find that on Strava.com. I'll put a link to my profile on there so you can add me as somebody you follow. But my goal is to run or to complete an Ironman. But right now I'm just looking for a, a short, a much shorter triathlon just to kind of figure out the process of doing them. So anyway, those are my picks. Laszlo, what are your picks? I'm going to pick software engineering at Google. It's a 600-page book. Anyone who wants to understand of what all of these buzzwords, like code review and testing and anything else, it's written there. It's actually quite readable. It's like bitter pill. You need to read it once and then you, you, you know what they are doing. And the other book, what I would pick is Move Fast. Um, how Facebook builds software. That's uh, brand new. It was, uh, I think, $1 on uh, Amazon, so on Kindle. Um, so I, I recommend to buy buying it. And um, pretty much that's it. Spacey 3 is out. So I heard in one of your podcasts, you are recommending Python packages, you know. <laughs> that's, a, that's a new issue and, and highly recommended for anyone who does natural language processing. Awesome. And finally, if people want to connect with you online, we mentioned your blog, or at least uh, Ben sold it so that any reasonable person would want to go sign up for it. Where else can people find you? Twitter, GitHub, anything like that? LinkedIn is the best place. Okay. Uh, my name is pretty unique, so you can find me easily, but I'm going to pass you my my page to you, right? Yep, we'll put it in the show notes. People can just click through and then send you a message. All right, well, thanks, Laszlo. This was really terrific. Thank you very yeah, much. Your- great stuff. I, I've never taken so many notes during a podcast. So <laughs> solid gold, so thanks. That's good. Yeah, it's it an absolute pleasure. All right, folks. Yeah, till next time, Max out. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C A C H E F L Y dot com to learn more.